Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and today I'm joined by Leanne Hughes, who is an international facilitator, speaker, and coach who loves creating unpredictable workshop experiences that predictably work. She's also the host of the First Time Facilitator podcast, and you can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. You're listening to one now, so just quickly search First Time Facilitator podcast, and you will find hers there. Thank you so much, Leanne, for joining us on the podcast. So before we get to like some more detail, tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Phil. It's just a joy to talk to someone that loves facilitation and geeks out on learning um, as much as I do. So it's a real honour to be here. And I'm sure your listeners are as keen as, as we are too. So um, my background is, well, it's all about learning for me. I just love learning. And it's funny that you do sort of outdoor activities. I used to play netball at a pretty high level. And in high school, we had this high performance program where they took our teams to do this high ropes course. I don't like high ropes. Like I just have no upper body strength and I kind of failed. But what I loved about it was the debrief afterwards. And this is when I was probably about 15, 16, really stuck with me. And then at university, I didn't enjoy lectures, but I loved the tutorials. I loved just talking to other people. And yeah, the game of facilitation, I guess what I do now is I, I run these workshops now, but it really was a, a process of just being a interested learner, a really keen participant. I guess I'm the particip- participant that you're facilitators want in workshops because I'm answering the questions, I get involved, very active, trying hopefully not to take over by answering too much. It's the process of loving that, loving being in that group environment so much that I wanted to be a facilitator that ran these sessions. So I do a couple of different things and I have a podcast like you called First Time Facilitator where I sort of bring and bring in great facilitators around the world and ask them what they did to make their workshops great. But I still also work with corporations and run like leadership workshops, team development. So two mixed audiences, which, which gives me the variety. Yeah, I think that, you know, what you said was perfect because there's that the notion that you didn't experience, you didn't necessarily like the experience, but the the learning outcomes that you get from that, that's the important thing. I recently heard this analogy and I wonder if you resonate with this because I I heard it and I was like, oh, this is so cool. That as a facilitator, we are making stuff easier. But what's really exciting is that we're going, it's like we're going onto a bus, we're turning the engine on, then we leave the bus and then all the group walks on the bus. They figure out where they need to sit. They figure out their destination. They figure out the speed they go. They're in control. All I do is merely turn the engine on and I liked that analogy because I think that that's what I try to do as much as I can. I don't want to be steering it. And you sometimes see yeah. those newer facilitators where they try to steer the conversations, right? I, I know the outcome I want them to get to. And I wonder if that resonates. Sorry, I rambled there a bit. But. Absolutely resonates because I, and if you talk about the differences between, and my podcast, First Time Facilitator, it was me in the driver's seat of the bus with the uniform telling everyone else they needed to sit in these seats. Yep. And this was the itinerary. This is where we'd stop and have lunch. Like that, like honestly, to a, to a point where um, my workshop agendas were to the minute, like at 3.01, we will do this 3.04, just because of that lack of confidence and um, thinking that I had to be, like have the highest status in the room and and drive it. And I was a sole person responsible for the outcome. That's what's really shifted uh, from being a first-time facilitator is 
now, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll get the bus. We'll, we'll get there and, you know, we'll, we'll arrive and pick up people on time. But I'm also ha- equally happy to sit in the back seat and be the cool kid too. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And I lo- uh, your reference to the agenda is just like, I guarantee people are listening going, oh, it's, that was me or it is me or wherever they're along their, their spectrum. I still write an agenda. I don't know if this is the same with you. I still write it. I very rarely yeah. follow it though. <laughs> it's more now that I'm like, I do it for my own personal comfort makes me feel more relaxed and yeah. know that I know what's going to go next, but no, I may not end up getting there, but I, I absolutely still, uh, I don't, not to the minute as much, but I definitely re- resonate with writing to the minute yeah, having script. I definitely have like, yeah, I love having, it's called an ID map. One of my first jobs out of university was instructional design, which mm. I hated at the time, but I think is really great. Uh, a base if if you're running if you're in this game um i just have a one pager id map and it just has like you know broad time frames but also i kind of have a color code so if i know that a certain topic could go a little bit longer it's like i'll mark that with like an orange just so what i know there's places where i can either pick it up slow it down so you know people can leave on time that's really important to me actually people getting out on time so the bus has to be on time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. A big pet peeve of mine is that when you see uh, workshops of facilitators, and I've seen it a lot also in the virtual space where they go, oh, I wish I had more time. If I had more time, I would have done this. And you're like, don't even say that. We didn't know you had anything less in your agenda. <laughs> You've just like put your cards on the table totally. that you poorly planned. And, and yeah. yeah, exactly. And just to add on that, it's like you got a minute left to go and they wrapped up and like, oh, but one more thing I have to tell you before you go. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Just leave it. Just leave it. Like, because yep. it's, it's all about building that trust and relationship. And yeah, I think um, commitment to time is a part of that. Yeah. Let's delve a little bit deeper into you and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. What was your pathway into finding the world of facilitation? I think I got the opportunity, like I said, I loved learning. I was actually working in a marketing role. So I, I had a quarter life crisis and ended up jumping into marketing. Uh, And I moved to a tiny town in Northwest Australia, the closest capital city is in Indonesia. It's so remote. Uh, I was working for a government organization and education, a community college is what they call Mm -hmm. them over in the US. So I was running all the marketing for them. Uh, But we were also targeting industry and corporate clients. But the cost to fly anyone up with any expertise from Perth was a lot of money. And so our local shy, they said, hey, we want some training on presentation skills. And I, my friend was organizing the training. She's like, do you know anyone? And she, this woman who was organizing the training, she was like the most experienced HR manager. She moved to Broome for a sea change, but there were no opp- opportunities for her. And I said to Bonnie, uh, you know what? I think we could do it. I think we could do it. And so she put us forward. They said, yeah, we'd love to have you. And in three weeks, we went to town, like researching everything, getting videos. And that was the first foray into it. I remember our debrief, we went for a champagne. It was on the second day to this place called the Mangrove Hotel. We we're talking about it and how we were feeling. It's funny. When I think about that experience now, I was like, gosh, that was such, it was just really kind of lecture style, a bit of engagement, but not too much. Mm-hmm. So I'm a bit embarrassed by it, but you, you have to start somewhere. But that was the first foray into it. And I really enjoyed it. We had great feedback and I thought, yeah, this is what I eventually want to do. Because I was so keen on learning, I was also getting a little bit frustrated. So mm. we'd have these professionals come up and they were running workshops and I was thinking, I think we can do this better. And it was just like this urge. And the more it sort of like gnawed at me, it's like, well, I've got to step up and, and do it myself. Like I keep thinking this, it's not fair. It's not fair for anyone. Why don't I see what it's like in the driver's seat? Yeah. Using your bus driver analogy. <laughs> <laughs> 
so um, I think it was it was like a final case. It was it was a way to showcase all that stuff that I learnt. It was a way to showcase like my love for groups and um, unlocking potential in people. I, I mean, I, that's what drives me is, and not only just in group settings but individuals. And they come to we have a conversation and they walk away knowing, oh wow, I feel better, I feel more certain, and this is what I'll do. Mm-hmm. I feel inspired to take action. So those that's the driver for me. It's just an intrinsic thing. Yeah, I think absolutely. it's why we're all in this game as well. Like we all love unto- um, yeah, those shiny eye moments in yeah. workshops. Oh, absolutely. Those those aha moments when something clicks where you have done something, you've facilitated something that has led to someone being like, oh, oh I get it now. Like those, I think that they're the really exciting moments for me yeah. in all of the stuff that we do. There was something that struck me in like I was looking around on your website and I saw in your video, you've got the 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 tagline of creating unpredictable workshop experiences that predictably work. What do you, mm. describe that in a little bit more detail. What do you mean by unpredictable workshop yeah. experience? Well, it happened when I was, I did this podcast series on like the 12 rules for facilitation, kind of based on Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. I was thinking of what is my philosophy around the design? And I think we all have our unique approaches and things that we bring in. And I think where I sort of stand out in marketing is all about positioning. I think my uniqueness that I'd love to share with others is using contrast within workshops. So what I was thinking about when I wrote that statement is I will map out what is so predictable about every workshop. So what do you think is predictable, Phil? Like, what are some predictable elements of every workshop that you've seen outside of your own business? Of yeah, um, I would say there's probably an agenda. There's someone who's the spokesperson, the person who's leading something. Yeah. There's there's going to be a large group uh, discussion with a report out, I would say, at some stage. Exactly. So you take all the common elements. Um, and I agree with that. So it's usually like, yeah, people walk in, they take a seat, they wait for someone to go up there, put a slideshow on. And the first thing that person does is introduces themselves and then does housekeeping. So it's like, okay, let's play. Even with that first five minutes, what could we play around with there? And so then I was thinking, how do you unpack that? Um, so one thing I've, I've just in talking about starting um, is something called the ragged start. So you're actually starting it as people arrive. So you have activities and speaking points and, and things going on. So it's actually starting when someone enters a room and, you know, it, letting sort of people dip their toes into that. And then when you start, maybe why can't you start from the back of the room? Why do you have to do housekeeping first? Why can't housekeeping be an experience in itself? So it was just sort of questioning like everything that that we're so used to, that's so predictable about workshops. How do we flip it? And the reason I think that's important is because workshops, team building, that kind of stuff doesn't have the strongest brand. And you'd find that I'm sure in your Mm -hmm. work, like people, Kind of, oh, we're going to team building. Yeah. Parker, have you read a pre-Parker's book? The Art, Art of Gathering. Gathering. Beautiful yeah. book. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, she talks about all that, you know, the event started before it has even started. So even mm-hmm. like the week before, is it like sending out videos? Like what can you do prior to, to change the expectation a little? We'll come, I will come back to this because I want to, I want to ask you a question maybe later about what I think that the industry needs to do. Um, but it might be a bigger question, but tying back to you learning and figuring out what was like maybe predictable and changing it. What's something that you've experienced in your time as a facilitator that you learned really early on that maybe someone taught you and said, this is great advice that you actually now disagree with. I'm really, this is, it can be a strength or weakness of my side. So I'm people, it's pretty easy for someone to argue a point with me. What I mean is I can kind of understand different points of view. That's okay. Cause in a, in a podcast conversation about facilitation every week, 
Phil, you might find it the same. Mm. People have conflicting opinions. Like someone will come up and say, icebreakers suck, don't do them. <laughs> someone else will say, icebreakers are awesome, you have to do them. And so I think with advice when it comes to facilitation, it's almost, I mean, at any type of advice, it should we should all have that legal advice statement after it. It's like, <laughs> it is only relevant in this context. Like, so I guess the, the advice, that, and no one really told me anything. I was uh, like this broom gig, we were just sort of self taught. We ran it on what we enjoyed from facilitators. But I think the advice that I was giving myself very early on was you need to be the content expert. I'm sure that's come up a lot. Don't let anyone think that you don't know, like you must know everything. And so when I was talking about that three-week lead-up time to that presentation skills, I was literally just studying content on how to be a great presenter and not really thinking enough about how to create connections, how to create that great environment. It was all focused on content. So that's the thing that's really shifted for me the most is the content is connection trumping content. I remember in England being like, if those who can't do teach, and I never really liked that phrasing, but I think that there is some relevance to the notion that you don't need to do to teach. Because I, when I came to the States, I didn't have a background in outdoor education or any of, this, any of the work that I'm doing. I have an English degree. I was kind of thrown in and having to figure stuff out, but because I was focusing on the teaching route, like that was where I was going, I took some of those skills and brought them into that world and said, you know, I can teach people. I'm pretty good at teaching people. I, these are just new things that I'm having to teach. So it's like there were skill sets that were still there. And I didn't need to know all of the content. I just needed to be able to figure out ways to impart content, right? Like I don't need to know it. I just need to know how to get it into other people's brains. And they're the ones who will figure that stuff out. There's a, there's a phrasing in experiential ed that is um, connection before content, which I think is a good phrasing. I sometimes think that as a facilitator though, connection is our content. Because rather than connection before content, you, most mm. of the stuff we're doing is always centered around how do we connect people. And if the better we connect people, the more likely they're able to get more information. You, you reference icebreakers. The idea of doing things first, you do an icebreaker and then you do a name activity and then you do initiatives and then you do problem solve and then you get to deep discussion. That kind of like flow, I'm not, I'm not a sold on anymore. I think I was very stuck on it. Yes. Uh, I, I do similar uh, in like the, the ragged start thing. I don't do anything where we're introducing names or any of that kind of stuff before at least probably half an hour of activity because I've alleviated, I've created the buy-in right before I've had to then explain who I am. <laughs> no one wants the resume person at the start who like resumes right. themselves. They're like, oh, I've done all of this and this and this, and this is why you should listen. Everyone's like, okay, I don't want to listen to you anymore. Like, cause you've just bragged at me for 10 minutes. Just do it. Like actually do just something. Do it. Just demonstrate your credibility through yeah, what you do. Absolutely. You know, I completely agree. I, I, that is a really, uh, that does trigger me. But that, that monologue, <laughs> it's like, it's not, and yeah, the whole, it's not about you thing. It's not, it's not about them. And if they, if you're that brilliant, just like, just do your thing and make it work. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's how you build your credibility as a facilitator is you get that interaction. I'm the same as you. I was in the first minutes, like everyone stand up. Let's, you know, when we could, let's, let's do this. Let's get engaged and. I love that statement. Connection is our content. That's very powerful. Partly as well, and you probably know this from doing the podcast, I have to, I edit all our stuff, so I have to listen to myself over and over again too. And so I start to catch on stuff I'm saying. I'm like, oh God, I did the connection before content statement again. And I, what you said is like, people will come in with this advice as if they were blanket, 100% content, like statements of fact. And I've, I'm e equally problematic in that area because my job is, for High Five is a trainer. So I facilitate a bunch, but I'm also teaching people how to facilitate. And so because I'm doing that, I do sometimes add in like, and this works great. And I'm like, for me, I have to add that like for me statement in because 
I, and I wonder if this is the case with you, if you've, yeah. as you've seen yes. people, I mimicked a lot of people when I started. My process of coming in was I see someone do it and I'd be like, wow, they nailed that. I'm going to do that exact same thing. And then I would do it and it would flop. Yeah. So it's like, what are they doing different? And I think it was more of like, I just need to be me more. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I was exactly went exactly through the same thing, just mimicking people and it's, you know, we, we've all got to have our strategies to get past that the initial hurdle. So I think it's okay. It's okay if you want to mimic and put content first. Like, don't worry about that. Just go through the journey and and you'll learn from your mistakes. It's something I wish we could fast track, but often we can't. And those lessons are very valuable to have. So if I had what a change Leanne mimicking, what I change Leanne spending all that time on content. Nah, no. No, exactly. <laughs> Let's have this conversation today and it's like I'm bigger, better because of it. Just on that thing about status. I spoke to Michael Bungay Senya, who's one of my favorite authors, author of The Coaching Habit and Advice Trap. And he 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 will really talk about lowering his status a lot. Like because he knows, you know, he's got the credibility of an author and everything else. So one thing he does is he'll just instead of slides, he'll just use these like awful hand-drawn flip charts where like no one can read his writing, it's just scrappy. But he does that intentionally to lower his status to say, hey, this is scrappy and it's okay to have like half-baked ideas when you talk. So even thinking about, okay, yeah, we can lower our status in, in the way we communicate, but also how can you apply that through, I mean, even virtually, right? Because I guess I was creating these beautifully designed slides because I do value professionalism, but I'm thinking, okay, what kind of environment am I setting up here for my participants? And it could be great for a keynote, for a workshop. I don't know. This is a very challenging question. I wrote this and then I felt guilty about writing it, but you've done a, over 150 episodes of First Time Facilitators. So I recommend everyone checking out First Time Facilitators. So much information, so many interviews. If you could, even in thinking of the maybe recent episodes, what's been a takeaway that you've, you've heard someone share something and you've been like, yes, I'm going to use that. So, uh, okay, so I'll start with my first facilitation one, but I'd also love to give a business facilitation Absolutely, one as please. well. Yeah, okay. absolutely. They're kind of two separate things. So the facilitation one, I think, would be uh, my very recent episode with Jan Keck when he spoke about because um, often we find as facilitators, there's a couple of different audiences, and we love working with the audiences that want to put their hand up and attend our workshop. They've self-selected, they're keen, but most often we're brought into organisations and people are nominated by HR. So you must this training is mandatory, or your managers selected mm-hmm. you. So. Yeah. What we spoke about on that episode, a metaphor that he used that I loved is how do you how do you deal with that? He, the metaphor was, okay, my goal as a facilitator is to get everyone to jump into a pool. But there's a few ways you choose how you do that. You can jump on in, you can dive in, you can test the water, but that's your choice. My goal as a facilitator is to get everyone in the water. So I like that. And I like that he didn't use the analogy of like drink the Kool-Aid. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it's yeah. a nice analogy. I thought that was really powerful. It's like, okay, we've got this direction, but you choose how deep you go with that. Yeah. So that was good. On the business side of things, something that is completely profound. I don't know if, um, if your listeners are kind of like I was and working internally, love facilitating, but wanted to go out on my own and run my own business. I interviewed Alan Weiss from the, he's the author of Million Dollar Consulting. I was on the call with him because I'm a solopreneur now. And I was like, oh, I've been so busy. I haven't had time to market because I've been running workshops. And he said to me, your business model's wrong. I was like, oh my gosh, really? And it really got me thinking about 
facilitation as like the delivery mode, which is what I love. But how can you then take that into being an advisor and offering your services in a different way? That conversation impact, that one sentence from him in terms of a watershed moment, it has really got me thinking about how do I continue to scale what we do, the skills that we pick up as facilitators into something else. Um, And I ended up hiring him as my business coach after that. So Mm -hmm. that was truly profound. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great when you have those moments where someone else gives you a a critique, but there was a phrase that I heard. It was actually in, I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma. It's that Netflix documentary on stuff. At the very end of it, uh, someone references that the critic is the truest optimist. And I like that phrasing because I find that I'm critique. I I sometimes am a little bit critical of stuff. And you asked even earlier, you mentioned like, I want to know the why. The critic being the truest optimist really was profound to me because it's true. If someone's critiquing, they're not trying, they're not bashing it for saying it's bad. They're doing it because they want it to be better. They're more invested in it than someone who doesn't say anything. If someone knows nothing, apathy is the opposite of that, like not caring. But the criticism, you shouldn't try to take it as personally. And I do often take criticism quite personally, but you try not to because they're trying to help. It is truly they're reaching out and they're optimistic of something that you're doing and they think that there's something that you could improve on. Yes. And he also talks about, I think a really big thing in this game is self-esteem, self-worth. It's often spoken about in our community in that after a workshop, there's kind of like a dip and doesn't matter how great it was, you kind of had this like sugar low of like, oh, I don't know if you've experienced it, but I certainly like, yeah, just sort of felt it and and it's so critical because we we can lose sleep over things uh, when things don't go right in a workshop. We always think it's up to us. But his book, Million Dollar Maverick, it's all about how do you build that self-esteem and also separate it from the value that you bring to the world. So he talks about isolating losses and generalizing wins as a strategy for that. So, yeah, I think it's um, mindset and, mm-hmm. and how you cope with things and deal with criticism is is very important. Going back to a statement you you mentioned earlier about the industry or like the, the the way that it's perceived outwardly, I find that there's a lot of people in our industry. There is there are a few outliers where and and most of those are known entities, but a lot of, a lot of people who are great facilitators suffer from imposter syndrome to a degree where it's like don't know if they have the the value that they truly think they have because they are thinking of the of the content expert thing. They're like, I don't know everything, so why should I be telling anyone anything? Um, so they completely take themselves out of it. But I think about it is as, as an industry, specifically maybe about the one I'm in, experiential ed. I think everyone really fits under that banner anyway. It's learning from your experiences. I don't know if we're still seen at the level we all think we are in terms of like, we know that the power of the work we do, but we have to work really, really hard to persuade people to invest in this idea. And yet when they see it, they're like, oh, this is the greatest thing. And anyone inside, every time I have these conversations with people, it's like, what we're doing is the most important work we're doing in the world. Okay. I can hear that. And I can hear you saying that I can feel the passion, but why is it that we still struggle to be seen as that and not seen as a pseudo education or a side business part, or if an organization has supplementary money, they might throw it into it. Why is it not a core component of every business's idea? Why is it not a core component of everyone team's idea that they should have some form of coaching or facilitation? Could not resonate more with what you're saying. Even the, so I'm, I'm really thinking about this right now. It's very topical for me because it's, yeah, it's like we're constantly having to not only sell the service, but sell the, sell the industry. That's what we're mm-hmm. doing. We're having to inform and educate. 
I think, and even um, I think it comes down to language. In conversations all the time on the flip chart group, there's this, always this tension of what is a facilitator, what is a trainer, and people within the community get really, really worked up about it. Like I'm there to create, get the group versus I'm the expert. Like it's it, terminology, it gets in the way. And I think experiential ed, facilitation, when I explain what my podcast is to people out, people that are in this industry, like first time facilitator, got it. I'll listen to it. It's what I've searched in podcast apps. People outside of the industry, like a manager would not be searching for facilitation skills. They'd be searching for like, how do I deal with X, Y, Z? How do I get my team to, and they don't recognize that facilitation and the art of asking great questions and creating group dynamics is the major ingredient to do that. I think it's a, a language thing. And I'm curious because you you said you studied English at university. Um, I think we're so caught up in our own world and our own definitions that we're not actually really making it clear and accessible for the outside. Mm-hmm. I'm even thinking this so much that I'm willing, I, I'm considering changing my podcast name in order to grow mm-hmm. and make it more accessible for people outside of, of our scope. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm... I, what you're talking about is very true. Yeah, I think that that is it. It's such a crucial thing. I agree. We had a workshop that we used to run at High Five called Advanced Facilitation Skills. It would very rarely run, and it wasn't yeah. that the content wasn't valuable. It's exactly as you described it. You could ask people what they define as what they do. They're educators. They're all of these different things: coaches, trainers. What we've done is we've created value of something, but then we've created this insulated bubble of an in-group and an out-group. And unfortunately, the in-group, the out-group happens to be the general public. And that's not that's not a really great idea. What I've had to do with elevator speech, I often say to people is like, I'm a teacher. That resonates with people. They understand that, but they think I'm in a classroom working with kids. So then it's like, I have to redefine that every single term lumps me into a different box. And I think that we've had this at our organization. Our organization is called High Five Adventure Learning Center. Now the adventure part is always the hang up for people because when they think adventure, they think white water rafting and all this different skydiving. I think that's created a problem for us when we wanted to then spread our wings a little bit more and spread out because then everyone got hung up on that word. So I mentioned team building and you get hung up on that and it's like, we have to change that language. But I, I do think that I would I would consider myself the younger guard of the group coming in in the industry. I'm in my 30s, but it's like it, the coming into an industry and realizing I love this industry. I'm passionate about it, but I think that I have a somewhat a duty to re-educate the world on what we do in a way and not get stuck on the traditions of what has been in the past because we rely very much on word of mouth, our organization. And that's been really great for our business. And we've worked with professional sports teams and that's a word of mouth. It doesn't hasn't been because they figured out, they didn't search for us and find us that way. Someone knew about us and told their friends that we would be the right people for them. And that's not that that doesn't really serve the industry. And I'm trying to think of us industry-wide because I want to support where this podcast came from, where this one came from, was the idea that I never knew this industry existed when I was growing up. So I wish I other people knew it. And so I want more people to be aware of it. So I interview more people to say, like, this is how we got here. This is the path. Just so any emerging professional might have an idea, like, this is a thing. But we still need to do a better job at it. And I will admit, the podcast name, our podcast name, is not really great to bring in people. Vertical Playpen is reference to a challenge course element. It makes sense to our people who know us. It doesn't make sense to people who don't. But there's, it's, it's beyond those things. I think that you, I agree. Facilitation, yeah. not great mm. word 
if you want to explain to anyone else. <laughs> Sorry, I went on no, tangents. But. No, that's good. No, I, I'm going ma- massive soul searching and seeing what people use outside of us. And um, yeah, I think I've, I think I've got something, but I'm uh, it's still yeah. a work in progress. So oh, awesome. I'll, I'll share notes and I'm yes. on the uh, revolution with you. Yes, absolutely. As you find things that work, please let us know. And that would be awesome. The last one I had, just in terms of emerging professionals, let's say new people, because you you really do focus on that first-time facilitator coming in. What's the number one thing that you think is worthwhile to know? I think the number one thing is, uh, so time on your feet matters, but to get the time on your feet, you need a bit of confidence. So how do you get that? Co-facilitating would be mm. number one. That's what I would say. That's how I got my start in Broome. It's how I, when I worked in a corporate company, I was working in a learning and development role, but I wanted to run the leadership programs. I was the internal person. I co-facilitated with the external person. So not only that, but then I left my left that world and now I'm partnering with them and, and contracting with them on jobs as well. So it's a relationship business, but that is how I'd, I'd suggest getting your confidence up without ruining your, your esteem <laughs> to, because you need to build that, that up as well yeah. uh, is to co-facilitate. That's a great way to learn. And anyone listening, some great advice. Once again, I, I recommend anyone listen to this. You're already on a podcast. So once you got out of this one, once you finished listening, just search First Time Facilitator and listen on there too, because there are so many episodes. I've, I've barely scratched the surface of my own listening. So I'm excited to listen more and learn from you and also learn from people that maybe aren't in my bubble. Once again, we're talking about that like notion of bubble and being able to broaden your horizon slightly and learn from others. But other than that, how might other people find you, Leanne, if they would, would like to reach out and connect? Yeah, sure. So my favorite playground is LinkedIn. Uh, so just search for Leanne Hughes on there. I also have my uh, website, leannehughes.com, which has lists to everything else. And now on Clubhouse at Leanne Hughes. So Phil, hope to see you on there. I'll send you an invite after this. Awesome. And uh, listeners, jump on in. Great to actually hear other people moderate and facilitate um, as if you take it a bit of a meta level. So yeah, uh, Instagram too. All the, I'm all over social media. You can't, uh, you can't, you can't miss me. Uh, thank you, Leanne, for willing to share your time and your expertise and your passion. I can hear it and I feel it and I, I've fed off it. So I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much, Phil. You're an awesome interviewer. I can imagine you being awesome in the in the workshop room too. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting Article Pasta Guy! <laughs>